This is an Ercasia special episode, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. Hello and welcome to part two of this first ever Ergasia special. My name is Brendan Byrne and I have the pleasure of being your host. You may recall from part one that I was attending an all-day event called the Work as Worship Retreat. The retreat was being hosted by a suburban congregation here in my hometown of Melbourne and featured a series of speakers webcast all the way from Dallas, Texas. These speakers were part of a conference organised by an American Christian media group called Right Now Media, and when I left you last time, we had heard from four speakers so far, two church pastors and two company CEOs. In this episode, I want to run through the remaining speakers and then offer some thoughts by way of reflection upon my experience of the event and the substance or otherwise of what was presented. So let's get started. This is Ergasia special number one, Work as Worship, a conference review, part two. Our first speaker was a gentleman by the name of Phil Vischer. Mr. Vischer is widely known in Christian circles as the creator of the children's animated series Veggie Tales, which explores stories from the Bible using vegetables and not humans as the main characters. I have to say, and for reasons I hope will shortly become clear, that given the somewhat triumphalist notes struck by some of the other speakers to date, Mr. Vischer landed like something of a hand grenade. Mr. Vischer began by outlining his childhood and formative years as a member of an evangelical Christian community, an experience which instilled in him a deep dream to serve God. Discovering his artistic talent and aptitude for animation at an early age, Mr. Vischer went on to unsuccessfully study at Bible college before more successfully landing work in the animation industry. Starting out with what he described as two guys and a laptop, Mr. Vischer began creating the Veggie Tales series of animations, slowly and often only by word of mouth, building up the franchise until it became a runaway success. Sales boom, growth soared, profits came rolling in. Enraptured in his dream of being able to spread the gospel message through Veggie Tales and other animation series, Mr. Vischer created his own animation company with, at its height, over 200 employees on the payroll. Then the troubles began. Mr. Vischer was sparse on the details, but reading between the lines, you got the distinct impression that this was a case of corporate overreach. The company had grown too fast too soon, 
and now its means of sustaining itself were exceeding the costs of its rapid growth. Profits plateaued, sales flatlined, income declined. Gradually at first, and then with increasing rapidity, Vischer was forced to retrench staff in ever more desperate attempts to cut costs and salvage something from what was looking like an increasingly horrific train wreck. The final straw was a lawsuit brought against Vischer by another party alleging breach of contract, a suit Vischer insisted was malicious and without grounds, but which he nonetheless lost. The ensuing damages forced him to sell what was left of his company, along with all the rights to Veggie Tales. Vischer had lost everything. All while this nightmare was unfolding, Vischer informed the audience that he was desperately praying to God to save his dream, to allow him to go on serving God through the Veggie Tales franchise and other animations. But God, Vischer informed us, was silent. And while the lawsuit against him was charting its destructive course, Vischer recalled that he pleaded with God to save him and his dreams from this malicious, groundless action. But God, Vischer repeated, was silent. God could have intervened, but didn't. Contemplating the wreckage of his dream, Vischer struggled with the question, Why did God let my dream die? Why didn't God respond to my appeals for help? After all, I'm a good Christian, aren't I? I want to use my success in business to serve God's word and spread the gospel. Fisher's rather startling answer to these questions was that God had allowed his dream to die in order to test what was more important to Fisher himself, his dream or God. In other words, his experience of rapid success and catastrophic failure was a test, a test to see if he could let go of his dream and just love God. Vischer declared that his dream had become an idol, an end in itself rather than the means to an end. His own desire to do good had become an idol precisely because he had lost sight of who the dream was supposed to serve. It had become about his own need for validation through success rather than a service to God. As a consequence, Vischer believed he had realized three insights as a consequence of his experience. 1. God loves us as we are. We don't have to prove ourselves to God through achievement. 2. Don't worry about outcomes, just trust in God. And 3. Beware your dreams lest they become idols by which you become enslaved. As I say, Mr. Vicious' talk landed like a grenade amid all the other presentations. Here was no success story, here was no tale of triumph after adversity. It seemed quite evident to me from the tone of Mr. Vischer's voice, from the manner of his delivery, from some of the more snide asides that he made, that for him the wounds of his experience were far from healed. Like a latter-day Job, he seemed consumed with bitterness. But unlike Job, who ultimately realizes the paucity of his theology and so remains silent before the mystery of God, Vischer seems to have clung to the retributionist theology which initially characterized Job's understanding of God. Because while I agree with some aspects of Vischer's conclusions, especially his point about things becoming an end in themselves rather than a means to an end, I was left wondering, does he really think God is some kind of insecure sadist 
who needs to test whether or not we love God the most, and who is prepared to do so in the most brutal terms imaginable? Is that the God he really wants to serve? Because it's sure as hell not my understanding of God. As Dostoevsky said, if the price of getting into heaven is the suffering of a single child, I'm returning my entry ticket. It was while pondering the implications of Mr. Vish's words that the next speaker came on stage. This was Tom Nelson, senior pastor of Christ Community Church and a driving force behind the Theology of Work project, an initiative by a group of American evangelical Christians to produce a series of Bible studies relating every book of the Bible to the experience of work. Mr. Nelson began by detailing his experience growing up in a poor rural environment and the bullying and ostracization he received precisely because he was so evidently poorer than all his peers. Mr. Nelson reflected that poverty is destructive to the soul, but what had haunted his memory of that time in his life was the fact that his family was part of a faith community that didn't seem connected to the reality of his poverty. They were all good people with a good pastor, he assured us, but they were focused on getting into heaven, not manifesting the kingdom of God on earth. They related to his family only in terms of their Sunday experience, not their Monday to Saturday experience. From this experience of detachment from the everyday reality of people, Mr. Nelson concluded that a problem with many churches is that they focus on faithfulness but not fruitfulness. In doing so, they miss the point that faithfulness requires fruitfulness in order to be active. By abiding in Jesus, we access a deep relational intimacy that enables relationship with others and which in turn activates what Paul called the fruits of the Spirit. The fruitfulness Mr. Nelson referred to was the fruitfulness of vocational productivity and the fruitfulness of neighborly love. In respect of the former, Mr. Nelson rather astonishingly asserted that because he spent the bulk of his life as a carpenter and a tradesman, Jesus was a brilliant business person and economist. In being a brilliant business person, Jesus was reaching back into the depths of the Jewish religious experience, into the mandate to engage in productive work, which Mr. Nelson asserted was at the heart of the book of Genesis. Mr. Nelson buttressed this argument by referring to Proverbs 31 and the good wife of the text who is actually an astute businesswoman who is productive as part of her God-fearing nature. From this, Mr. Nelson concluded that being faithful followers of Jesus involves being fruitful and productive in our vocational lives. Turning to the fruitfulness of neighborly love, Mr. Nelson cited the parable of the Samaritan and, and I swear I am not kidding here, he characterized the good Samaritan as a businessman on the basis that he was traveling to Jericho and Jericho was a busy commercial center and also happened to be home of the tax collector Zacchaeus. According to Mr. Nelson, this meant the parable was about economics. It involved an injustice in that someone stole something they themselves had not earned or created, and it involved justice in the form of someone who has worked hard to become fruitful and have the capacity to care for others. 
Thus, Mr. Nelson declared a primary way to care for others is bound up in the work we do, because working hard builds our capacity to provide care. This, he said, is exemplified by the innkeeper who features in the story of the Good Samaritan and at whose lodgings the Samaritan leaves the man who has been robbed. He is an example of a small business person whose labour enables provision of the facilities to care for others. By the time Mr. Nelson left the stage, my eyebrows were raised so high they had practically entered my hairline. Now, I make no claim to be a biblical scholar, but the notion of Jesus being a brilliant business person and economist? The woman from Proverbs 31 being an astute businesswoman? I've seen some long bows drawn in my time, but Mr. Nelson's assertions were quite possibly the longest I've seen drawn in a good while. As for the Good Samaritan being a businessman just because he was travelling to Jericho, and just because Jericho was a major commercial hub where Zacchaeus happened to live? Isn't it just as likely that a Samaritan might travel to Jericho because he had family there, or because Jericho was just a stopover on the way to somewhere else? And without wanting to calumny innkeepers as a whole, I nonetheless strongly suspect the innkeepers who view their establishments as de facto emergency wards are few and far between. But what troubled me most about Mr. Nelson's presentation was the implications arising from it. If you view injustice as someone taking something they have not earned or worked for, and, it, and justice as someone who has worked hard in order to build their own capacity, acting on the basis of that capacity, it doesn't take too much imagination to see how such a theology might be used to justify victimising welfare recipients or refugees and asylum seekers. After all, they haven't worked for or earned any consideration. Indeed, by not working or coming to our country, they are thieves who are stealing what doesn't belong to them. Likewise, you can see how this view of justice might be used to restrict compassion to the deserving few or to those who are deemed to have earned the right to compassionate treatment. Just like the shadow side of the notion of the undeserving sufferer and its implication that we might think there are people who deserve to suffer, so Mr. Nelson's views about what constitutes justice and injustice seem to me to carry the potential to limit compassion and grace only to those whom we determine deserve such considerations. By the time Mr. Nelson left the stage, lunchtime had come and gone, and the afternoon was getting on. By mutual consent of all the participants, the organisers decided to skip over a couple of the other speakers on the program and conclude with a recorded interview with Bill Hybels, the senior pastor of Willow Creek Church. The interview was neither very long nor particularly engaging, but Hybels did make the point that business leaders owe a stewardship obligation to the people whom they employ, and that employees who believe they are loved by their managers become the soul of an organisation, and as a result more productive to boot. People, Hybel declared, are the end of business, not profits or competition.
So, what did I make of the work as worship retreat? Well, the first thing I have to say is that I don't want to analyse the retreat in terms of good and bad, that is to say, what I personally liked and didn't like. Rather, I prefer to think in terms of what might have been helpful or problematic in advancing our understanding of the interconnections between faith and work and how those interactions might play themselves out. On the helpful side of the ledger, the repeated contention, as articulated by Matt Chandler at the start of the day's proceedings, right through to Bill Hybels at the end, that there is no separation between the life of faith and the world of work, is in my mind most important. In other words, what happens on Sunday is as much a part of our religious identity as what happens during the rest of the week. However, the bifurcation of the private life of faith and the public world of work has led to both a privatization of faith and a withdrawal of the church from critical areas of human life, such as work and our experience of work. This privatization and withdrawal have in turn separated Christians from their own human reality and from the reality of the people around them. The so-called crisis of the irrelevance of the church to the modern world is as much a product of the withdrawal of the church from the public space as it is from the public space being withdrawn from the church. In making this point, the speakers were reminding their audience that there is something essentially public about being a Christian. It does not exist for our own private sanctification, but for the embodiment of the gospel in and for the world. Also helpful was the call issued by Chris Brooks of Detroit's Evangel Ministries for the church to develop a theology of work and economics that enabled the church to be church in the midst of culture and thereby facilitate the flourishing of communities. In making this call, Brooks was, in my view, articulating the connection between critical analysis and active response. Christians need to do deep thinking about the causes and drivers of injustice and inequality and transform that reflective process into an active program for sustaining and increasing human dignity. The mission of the church is not merely to proclaim the gospel, but through action to create the space into which the gospel might be proclaimed. Another helpful aspect was Paul Vischer's reflections on how easily we can succumb to the idols that present themselves in our dreams and ambitions. Although I have major problems with the retribution theology that formed the framework for Mr. Vischer's reflection, nonetheless he drew our attention to an important point about idolatry and how things can quickly become an end in themselves when they ought to be better understood as a means to an end. For Mr. Vischer it was his own desire for success so that he could serve God. For many Christians, it is the desire to grow the church by filling up the pews and restoring congregational budgets. All too often, the church has become an end in itself when it is only a means to an end. And in relation to work, Mr. Vischer's reflections reminded us how in modernity, work has become an idol, the chief measuring stick of human legitimacy and value, the provider of all meaning and basis for being. As we explored in the series based on the book Dead Man Working by Carl Sederstrom and Peter Fleming, the centrality of work in human life has grown to such monstrous proportions 
that it has in fact captured the whole of our being. It is the primary idol of our times. What did I find problematic about the event? For starters, I don't think any of the speakers answered the questions which Brian Mosley, the president of the Right Now Media Group who organised this event, said were going to be the focus of the retreat. Did we discover what it meant to be a Christian living out your faith in the workplace? Did we discern what might occur if the life of faith intersected with the world of work? Did we explore the notion of what it meant for work to be a form of worship? I really didn't think so. Take the example of work as a form of worship. As a Christian conception of work, it is actually quite ancient, stretching back through the monastic tradition all the way to the early desert fathers and mothers. But their idea of work as a form of worship was not just about doing work conscientiously and well. It was also concerned with whether or not our construction and experience of work served the inherent dignity possessed by all humans as a consequence of their creation in the likeness and image of God, and whether work served the call to covenantal relationship with God and with one another that lies at the heart of Christian faith. Work could not possibly be worshipped if it was exploitative, oppressive, unjust or dehumanising. Work could not be worshipped if it entrenched social injustice and economic inequality. Work could not be worshipped if it served the cause of self-aggrandizement and enrichment at the expense of service to others. Yet there seemed to be precious little consideration of any of these dimensions in the speaker's presentations. Another problematic aspect of the retreat was the narrowness of the perspective presented by the various speakers, by which I mean there wasn't a single working-class person on the program. All the speakers were either corporate founders, CEOs or presidents, or the senior pastors at various megachurches, which, let's face it, is just another form of CEO. I'm not trying to suggest CEOs and senior pastors don't have anything worthwhile to say. It's just that a retreat which presents essentially the same perspective over and over is somewhat limited. I would like to have heard from a Christian labour activist, a Christian line manager, a Christian sales clerk. I would like to have heard their perspective on how the life of faith and the world of work intersect. Unfortunately, we never got to hear those voices, and without them this event seemed like it was created by CEOs for CEOs, and that the whole exercise was theology for the wealthy by the wealthy. However, for me the most problematic aspect of the retreat was the fact that it was entirely lacking in any prophetic critique, and that, to say the least, is a significant deficiency, especially in a group of people who were so adept at quoting the Hebrew Scriptures. That is to say, they were adept at quoting the law part of the Scriptures, but about the prophetic voice in Scripture, the calls for economic justice and liberation from oppression, they were entirely silent. Even Chris Brooks, by far the most substantial and compelling of the presenters, who spoke directly from the experience of a community devastated by the global financial crisis, seemed unable or unwilling to critique the very system that had precipitated that suffering. It was as though all the speakers, having implicitly tied the spirit of Christianity 
to the spirit of corporatist capitalism were unable to offer any systematic critique of present economic structures, confining themselves instead to a focus on the individual. As an example, take Matt Chandler's advice to CEOs to put family first, to not allow the demands of their work and the pressure of their schedules to get in the way of their relationships with their partner and children. That's advice I don't quibble with. But what if you're one of the millions of working poor, who even though they might be working full-time or close to full-time hours, are paid so poorly they are forced to take a second or third job just to make ends meet, and thereby have their family relationships suffer not from choice but the necessity of physical survival? What of the structural injustices that entrench this inequality? Mr Chandler never even brought that scenario into view, let alone spoke to it as a reality that makes his advice to CEOs a luxury only the wealthy can afford. In summary, I could say there was a whole lot wrong with this retreat, from Mr Chandler's none-too-subtle classism and his implied suggestion that blue-collar workers are lazy lumpen proles, to Anne Byler and Joe Manby's saccharine self-helpism, which in Ms Byler's case was particularly disappointing, given you would have thought her experience of trauma would have produced a deeper and more reflective response, to Tom Nelson's eccentric scriptural interpretation. But here's where I give these folks credit. I might disagree with their theology, I might chafe at the whiff of elitism or Christianity as consumerism that clung to their presentations, but at least they were taking seriously the connection between the world of work and the life of faith. At least they were taking seriously the need for the church to develop a theology of work that integrates what happens on Sunday with what takes place during the rest of the week. At least they understood the necessity for the church to be engaged with the reality of work in human life, a reality which in modernity is the primary reality for most people aged between 18 and 65. That's a damn sight more than the so-called mainstream churches are doing, including the church of which I am an ordained minister. Their activity shames the inactivity of the rest of the church and only makes all the more stark the necessity for mainstream churches to remember their own history of activism in the world of work and once again take up the task of being church and embodying the gospel in the world of the everyday. And so that concludes this two-part Ergasia special. I hope you've enjoyed my take on the Work as Worship retreat, and as I said in the introduction to part one, I hope to bring more special episodes to you in the not-too-distant future. But for now, that's all. I hope to have the pleasure of your company in future. For more information or to leave feedback, visit the website at www.ergasia.podbean.com. 
I'm your host, Brendan Byrne. Goodbye for now. This has been an Ergasia special episode. For more information, go to www.ergasia.podbean.com. Thank you.